This is uh, Dr. Peter Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. And today I have the great pleasure and honor to speak with Professor Philip Harder, who is in the Department of Gynecology and Gynecologic Oncology at Kliniken Essen Mitte in Essen, Germany. And uh, of course, it's a, it's a pleasure to have uh, uh, Philip on the on the podcast, and and this is a long awaited uh, study. So we're really very excited to speak about the desktop three trial. This was published in the December issue of the New England Journal of Medicine, uh, titled "Randomized Trial of Cytoreductive Surgery for Relapsed Ovarian Cancer." So, Philip, uh, once again, congratulations and uh, welcome, and thank you for participating in the podcast. Yeah, dear Peter, thank you for inviting me to <laughs> participate in your podcast. Really a pleasure, and yeah, hello everybody. <laughs> Fantastic, who are hearing? <laughs> so thank you, thank you so much for taking the time out of uh, out of your day at the end of your busy day. So um, there's a lot of questions, of course, some uh, posed by us and, and and colleagues, and of course uh, many of them by the uh, uh, fellows of the journal. So I want to get started and um, ask you first, and you know, certainly the desktop three has been, as I mentioned, a very long awaited study. Um, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the development of the study and, and what was known at that time uh, when you designed uh, the study. Oh, so um, you really need to go a long, long time back. So I started, or started focusing on this question about 19 years ago. Uh, I started with a literature research. I wanted to write a review, and I was aware that the, all the published theories were so heterogeneous regarding the surgical result, because nobody was aware what is the surgical aim. Um, but it was always the same message at the end. If you have a successful surgery, the patients have a certain benefit. And our first step was to start the desktop one trial. This was a multi-center trial with um, 25 centers. And we asked all the participating centers to document the patients in whom they did the surgery for relapsed ovarian cancer uh, in the last years. At the end, it was 260 patients. And we could clearly see but there's only a benefit if we achieve complete resection, what is different to primary ovarian cancer. But this was clear finding of this trial. Um, because of this finding and because that we have seen all in the participating centers that the complete resection rate is so heterogeneous, therefore we recognized we need a certain score that we could identify patients in whom we have a high chance for complete resection. Because if you plan a randomized trial and you would like to look for this question, it's clear that this would be a negative trial if you have maybe only 20% complete resection at mm -hmm. the end. Mm -hmm. Because the survival benefit is based on the complete resection and not by open the abdomen alone. So this was the story behind the HEO score. We wanted to have a tool for randomized trial to identify patients in we have a high chance for complete resection. And we identified good performance status, complete resection of primary surgery, and no ascites. And there's often the question, what's about tumor marker CA125? 
Um, there was also correlation of CO125, so it was a higher chance for complete resection um, if the tumor marker is low. But we were not able to define a certain uh, <clears throat> a certain limit. So, and if we looked at the data, so it was easier to take ascites as additional factor, which was also in correlation with the tumor marker. And this is the reason why ascites is in the score and not the tumor marker. Mm -hmm. Then subsequently, we started the desktop 2 trial where we tried to validate the HEO score. And again, more than 500 patients um, uh, were included in this prospective validation of the HEO score. And this was successful because we have seen that in more than 70% of the patients, a complete resection was possible. Mm -hmm. And then we were sure that we now have the correct tool to plan a randomized trial comparing surgery followed by chemotherapy versus chemotherapy alone. Perfect. And that, that gets us to the desktop three. So I want to get into the, that study uh, uh, because obviously we got a lot of uh, questions that we want to cover. So what were your inclusion criteria for this study, the desktop three? So the inclusion criteria were a positive HEO score um, defined by complete resection of primary surgery, no ascites, and good performance status, ECOG zero, and a treatment-free interval after um, end of primary platinum-based chemotherapy of at least six months, and we need to have a clinical relapse. Mm -hmm. So tumor marker alone, without any findings in imaging, these patients were not allowed to enter the study. Very well. Um, and uh, one of the questions that came up from our fellows, uh, Natalie Medley from Jamaica, Florian Jokin from uh, France, um, they said, well, you know, certainly as we get into the selection of trial centers, and this is obviously a multi-institutional uh, study, um, this is obviously very relevant in, in this discussion, as you brought it up before, the, the issue of surgical experience. Uh, how did you select the sites? Oh, we were in the lucky situation that we just started the, the LION trial mm. before. And in the LION trial, all the participating centers needed to qualify by surgical reports and the number of surgeries and the number of systematic lymphadenectomies. And from the data from the LION trial, we were aware, okay, these are good centers and Therefore, at first, we approached centers participating in the LION study. Very well. There was also yeah. a similar trial um, at <clears throat> the same time from France um, that had also a similar um, selection system and also the centers joined. So at the end, there were some in addition that the majority of the participating centers uh, were centers from the LION study. Yeah, so, so you already had documentation of uh, a very good uh, surgical technique and, and volume in those centers. Um, so then now, what were the primary and secondary endpoints of, uh, of the desktop 3? So um, the, uh, our estimation was because surgery is such a huge impact um, on on the patients that the only or the most important endpoint is overall survival. So therefore we have chosen overall survival as primary endpoint. Mm -hmm. But 
secondary endpoints included, of course, progression-free survival, morbidity, um, the predictive and um, prognostic value of the tumor markers is not published so far, but this is in planning and also quality of life, mm-hmm. a secondary endpoint. Excellent. Now, what were the results? What were the results of the desktop three? Um, <clears throat> the first result, uh, I think that again, the HEO score worked with the complete resection rate in the surgical arm of seven, about 75%. Um, we have seen a benefit in overall survival of about eight months, which was also um, significant. We have seen that we have an acceptable morbidity. But we have also seen that the benefit of overall survival and all the progression-free survival is limited to patients with a complete resection, Mm -hmm. which is also absolutely in line to the data that we have seen before in the desktop one trial. And we have also seen that surgery does not um, result in deterioration of the quality of life. There were no differences between the two arms. Yeah, and that's, uh, that's obviously very important as well. Um, so now, Philip, I, I want to get into some of the, the more detailed uh, analysis of, of the study. Um, the first question I had was um, noting that 75% of patients in each group had a platinum-free interval of more than 12 months. Would you say that these results um, don't really apply to patients who recur within one year of completion of therapy? Um, no, I don't, I don't think so. Um, we um, have also a relatively high number of patients with a treatment-free interval of 6 to 12 months, mm-hmm. about 25%. No? And if you look at the forest plot, then the effect of surgery was more pronounced in this subgroup compared to the subgroup of more than 12 months. Okay, the subgroups and cohorts are small, but we have seen in the forest plot there is at least the same effect. So therefore, I don't think that we need to limit surgery to patients with uh, treatment-free interval of at least 12 months. But however, I agree that the, um, the trend to offer surgery is higher if you have relapsed after two years or three years compared to nine or ten months. Yeah. But I think at the end, if it's a potential candidate from the desktop three data, it's justified to offer surgery also after nine months or six months. Yeah, and and we can talk about some of the other uh, selection criteria in a little bit. Um, This next question comes from Felix Boria. He's one of our fellows in Spain, and uh, he brings up an interesting point. He says... Um, one of the questions that often comes up when discussing the topic of surgery in the relapse setting is subsequent surgery. So in other words, patients who had multiple surgeries for recurrence. Um, what do you make of that? And when was this a factor that could have impacted the, the results of, of your study? Uh, as some might question that this might have impacted overall survival outcomes. So... Um we have also seen an, um, an impressive difference in progression-free survival. This is at least for me a sign that there's effect also just by the, by the first 
surgery. And um, so if you look for place of secondary surgery, so in the desktop three, so in both arms, so it was, I think, 15 and 20 percent of the patients who had another surgery after the first relapse. So this makes it, I think, difficult to impossible to draw any really firm conclusions um, about this question. I think maybe in um, some years we will also see the data of the SOC1 mm-hmm. trial. In this trial, the rate of tertiary surgeries was much higher than in all the other trials. Maybe this can give us some better explanation what is the role of further subsequent surgeries. I think for me is also a very important question what is not only the role of a tertiary surgery. We have several publications about this already, even if it's anecdotal. But a very important question for me is what is the role of surgery in patients who had no surgery for the first relapse? Hmm. <laughs> so, 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 yes, because so far we have no data about this. Um, but in the desktop three trial, we had some patients who had surgery in the standard arm later. So the question is, what is the role of surgery for this patient? Because at the moment, you see very often patients who had no surgery for the first relapse. But if you look at the at the data and at the imaging, well, why was this not done? Now the hospital, maybe desktop three data not known or whatever the reason. Mm-hmm. And what is now your choice of the further treatment? Is surgery also an option? Despite there was no surgery before, we don't know. I think we have many open questions about the role for surgery in subsequent or later lines of treatment. Yeah, and actually you you bring up a, a really very interesting point. You're absolutely right. And also probably the, the fact that uh, perhaps patients who had tertiary and, and subsequent surgeries, there were probably also patients who were much more fit and had indications that were much more fitting for, for uh, subsequent surgeries. And I think it's also important to highlight that when the study is not designed to evaluate that question, then one can only postulate and hypothesize as to what would have been potentially the outcome. Now, the, the next question um, it's about surgeon experience. Um, and I think this always obviously comes up in many surgical trials, of course. Um, microscopic complete resection was 75% in the desktop three. Um, this was in, in obviously highly selected centers. Um, so the question is, when, you know, what, what does this mean for the general population of surgeons? We know that many centers uh, don't even know what their complete resection rates or even many surgeons don't even know these numbers for themselves as to what is their r0 rate at secondary side reduction um so can we say that results of these uh this study should only be considered for highly select centers rather than the overall population i'm interested in hearing your take on that um i agree though it's no question that just to open and look at the tumor and close again is not the effect of surgery. Uh, and the most important issue is the preoperative selection. Mm-hmm. And since the desktop three tra- data, I see that more centers starting to offer such surgeries, 
but also the patients are asking more active for another surgery. And I think um, it's really absolutely important that you know as a surgeon your own data. Yeah. What are your criteria? What are your what is the outcome of your patients regarding um, residual disease and also regarding morbidity and mortality? So <clears throat> um, we now at our center these not only the PFS but also the OS data since more than two years. And at our center, nothing has changed. The number of surgery is comparable to before, and all the outcome is still the same. But I agree. I see much more patients, and somebody is asking, is surgery an option? And I think we still need to be careful in the selection and just open and have a look is not the best way. Absolutely. Um, this next question, I think, also highlights a very important message from the desktop three. Um, complete resection, overall survival was 62 months, but any gross residual disease was uh, associated with an overall survival of 27 months. So that seems worse than the overall survival for, for patients who went straight into chemotherapy. And I think that that means that if you know certainly if you get it wrong you may place that patient at a disadvantage in terms of survival in other words if you go to surgery and leave residual disease how do we highlight that finding in other words is it fair to say that this should be highlighted in the consent process for these patients um yes um i, I Absolutely. So um, I think we were all surprised when we have seen this finding. And so far, I don't know what is really the truth behind. I think we are all aware of, I think, maybe some individual patients where we tried surgery. We were not able to really open the abdomen. We had a bowel leakage and all the complications. But this does not, does not explain this finding. I think that we have to imagine in the standard arm. The standard arm um, includes a mixture of patients with a good prognosis and a bad prognosis. And mm. good and bad biology, and maybe patients with a good biology have a higher chance for a complete resection, and with a bad or more aggressive biology with a lower chance, and they still have residual disease, and maybe this tumor is also more resistant to subsequent chemotherapy. Mm. And in the standard arm, we have both populations, but we can't see it because we don't know so far. So this is a potential explanation of this finding, but at the moment, I don't have the good answer. It's just my hypothesis to yeah. explain this. Yeah, no, yeah. I, absolutely. Um, excellent point. And... Um, Another point, obviously, that has come up in terms of uh, discussions and particularly also comparisons of the other trial, the GOG-213, is the issue of the treatment in the control arms. Um, so now let's, let's discuss, uh, discuss the differences in terms of treatments in, in the no-surgery arms. So 23% of patients in the desktop 3 received uh, bevacizumab, and 84% of patients in GOG-213 uh, did so. Um, would this not tell us that desktop three 
just had an inferior treatment in the no surgery arm and thus the reason why surgery looks good and even going a step further should we take away from all of this that if you have bevacizumab available whether you do surgery or chemotherapy it doesn't matter um i think it's difficult to compare um, both trials so gog to certain was a mixture of a chemotherapy study and a surgical question and desktop 3 is a pure surgical trial and especially in desktop 3 is a high probability that the surgical outcome influences the choice of second-line treatment from a methodological point of view is there a high risk of a huge bias but if you look a little bit closer on the GOG 213 data I don't understand it so patients without bevacizumab and no surgery so patients who just received carboplatinum gemcitabine yes if we have four cohorts say of the best prognosis with a median PFS of 67 months mm. yes really so therefore to me I think this shows that we should not um, compare everything in detail and we should really absolutely careful in interpreting systemic treatment in a trial with a surgical question because if you look at the GOG213 data people who just received carboplatinum gemcitabine no surgery no bevacizumab they have the best prognosis do you believe this <laughs> contrary to desktop 3 to oceans to everything so then that, that brings me to another point with regards to uh, adjuvant treatment or, or maintenance treatment. Uh, this is also from Natalie Medley and Felix Boria. Uh, they ask about, um, it seems that you know, it's certainly a, a large number of patients who respond after initial treatment today are on PARP inhibitors. Uh, in the desktop three, only eight patients in the surgery group uh, received uh, PARP are the results of the desktop three applicable to today's practice? Oh, I think yes, again. So um, when we have seen the desktop three trial, uh, the data of PFS and OS for, for the first time, and we have also seen at the same time the fantastic data, especially in PRCA-positive patients with relapsed brain cancer receiving PARP inhibitor as maintenance therapy. But now PARP inhibition has moved to first-line therapy. Mm. And the, the, the effect of a PARP after PARP is much more limited now. So I think this is a great question for a PARP-naive patients. But I think it's the same as for bevacizumab. So far, we don't have enough data that we could say that a good systemic therapy could replace surgery and also um, vice versa, good surgery does not replace systemic treatment. Very well. Um, mm -hmm. But I think the number of patients, the PRCA positive patients, PARP naive with first relapse, this is really rare, at least in one or two years, this is really a rare case. Yeah, and, and I'm sure, obviously, that these, these factors will be coming into subsequent analyses of, of this question, I'm sure, in the future. Um, now, Philip, I, I have a, a question also from, from our fellows, Dimitris Nassiudis from uh, U.S. and Florian from uh, France. Um, 
and, and obviously this is uh, information that perhaps we cannot gather from the desktop three, but they, it's more about your uh, practice and your daily practice. Um, only a minority of patients had clear cell mucinous or low-grade uh, serous carcinoma in the desktop three. Um, given the relative chemo resistance in these patients, in your daily practice, do you take into consideration histology apart from the um, AGO score when deciding chemotherapy versus secondary reductive surgery? I think that's really a great question. And especially um, so patients with low-grade serous ovarian cancer, very often these are candidates for for secondary surgery, and I am more um, pro-surgery in this patients, but I think we have to also to keep in mind that especially low-grade serous ovarian cancer um, much more aggressively invades the organs and the peritoneum compared to high-grade serous ovarian cancer. So if you have the same findings, so surgery is much often more difficult in low-grade serous ovarian cancer, but also because of the chemo-resistant, I am more in, often in favor of chemotherapy. The same applies for, for clear cell. Um, for mucinous ovarian carcinoma, I think it's so rare that we see such patients, and I can't remember patients with relapsed mucinous ovarian cancer in whom I did surgery for relapsed disease. So maybe there were one or two, but this, I think, is absolutely rare. Most of them are already not resectable at first diagnosis or have massive ascites and peritoneal carcinomatosis at relapsed disease. I think this is really rare. So I cannot tell you what I would do with that <laughs> Very well. Uh, so, Philip, then uh, the next question again from Demetrius. He uh, he asks, uh, do you recall what were the most common locations for macroscopic residual disease after secondary reductive surgery? And as a follow-up, would you consider what's your thought on performing a laparoscopy before deciding to proceed with secondary reduction uh, in identifying the ideal patient? Um, so the most often factor limiting um, the chance for a complete resection is the same as for primary surgery, peritoneal carcinomatosis on the small bowel. So mm. therefore, it, unfortunately, you can't see it in CT scan, also not in PET CT. Diffusion vited MRI is also limited. So laparoscopy is also difficult to my experience because most of those patients have so much adhesions and if you do an, um, an artesilusis for two or three hours by laparoscopy um, and there's a high chance for injuring the small bowel, so therefore I think there is a certain role for laparoscopy in selected patients, especially I do it sometimes in low-grade serous ovarian cancer because then I want to know the the, the histology, um, then I have also some impression because low grade is much more in much more than um, really milieu carcinomatosis. But for the majority, we go after imaging and counseling, we go directly to the surgical theater for an open laparotomy with, without a prior laparoscopy. Very well. Um, this next question is from Florian, and, and she, she asked a question about the AGO score. And before you talked about the details of that, uh, when you were talking about the DES-1 
uh, trial. But um, she said, you know, certainly in the literature, particularly in a study from the Mayo Clinic back in 2016, evaluating the performance of the AGO score, uh, approximately 64% of AGO negative patients underwent complete surgery. Doesn't the AGO score overselect patients who can benefit from a complete surgery? Um, what are your thoughts on that question? Um, so in our series, which we also published some years ago, we had a similar finding. So there was also, before we routinely used the HGO score, we also had a certain number or a high number of patients with complete resection. Um, but as Ori pointed out before, regarding the history of the HGO score was to have a tool for a high chance for complete resection in a randomized trial. This was originally the idea behind. But when we analyzed our own data, we saw that the HEO score is not only predictive, it's also at least, it was not significant, um, but it is also associated with prognosis. And so, and again, maybe this is also the selection behind is also very important because now we have one study using the HEO score, the desktop series is positive. There's another trial not using a score, GOG 213, this trial is negative. <laughs> so therefore, I think, it, so for primary surgery, complete resection is complete resection. Yes, so maybe this story is not so easy in patients with relapsed ovarian cancer because maybe tumor biology is much more different. So we don't know, but so I also offer sometimes surgery for patients who are HEO score negative, but I would not do this in a patient with ascites. Um, I usually do this sometimes in patients with residual disease, which was caused by the hospital um, where the patient had the primary surgery. said, okay, this is just a technical issue why she had not a complete resection mm -hmm. and not caused by tumor biology. So, for example, in Germany, so there are many hospitals who are not able to do a diaphragmatic stripping. Yeah. And if you, this was a reason for residual disease and the patient comes two years later to you with tumor on the right diaphragm, I say, okay, this is still a candidate. But... I am much more careful regarding the selection in patients who are HEO score negative. Definitely. So then that, that actually has a follow-up question from, from her as well with regards to, you know, as you mentioned, GOG213 was a uh, surgeon's uh, best uh, estimate at, at complete subtle reduction assessment, um, AGO score for desktop three, I model for the SOC1. Um, so her question is basically, why so much uh, emphasis on these scores when the proportion of complete resection in the three studies is basically the same? Mm, not completely. There are some percentage difference, but um, however, so maybe um, so the first score uh, which was developed was the HEO score. And the ZI model um, is also based on the desktop data. Mm-hmm. So uh, we, the colleagues from China asked us if they could use and if we could analyze together the desktop one data and also some other 
serious um, about this question. So therefore, um, so the scores ha use the same baseline data. Mm -hmm. So this is just one. I'm also co-author of, of the um, studies about the eye model. Yeah. And so therefore, these scores are somehow similar. And also, if you look at the factors, it's similar. But I think, um, again, um, maybe complete rejection alone is not everything. And so, therefore, I still believe in this score um, because I think maybe in the future we will have all the other scores, maybe a better one, but the moment I think it is an important tool who helps us to um, counsel our patients and to select the right candidates. Excellent. So, so Philip, as we are starting to wrap up uh, the, our, our discussion, I want to close with a, f a few additional questions. And, and one of them is one that I've seen come up over and over and over again uh, when uh, GOG 213 and, and uh, desktop three are, are compared. Um, GOG-213 is considered, by many, a negative study. Desktop-3, a positive study. And some might say that the answer is that the determination of success or failure is relative to the comparator. It can come from superiority of the experimental arm or inferiority of the control arm. So the median survival in, in the surgery arm in the desktop-3 was 54 months and 46 months in the no-surgery arm. So many people are saying, look, surgery is good in the recurrent disease because desktop 3 showed it. And 213 is a bad study because surgery is no good. So now overall survival in the surgery arm of 213 was 51 months and PFS, progression-free survival, was the same in both studies. So if the surgery arm performed the same in both studies, why is desktop 3 a good result and GOG 213 a bad result? <laughs> I did never say that GOG to certain is a bad result or is a bad study. So, but uh, as we already discussed before, so my interpretation is um, selection. So I am not completely aware of all data of GOG to certain, but maybe if you do surgery in unselected patients then you have the result of GUG to 13. And if you use the HEO score, then you have the results of desktop 3. I don't know if it is really so easy, but this might be a potential explanation. So complete resection alone is maybe not the whole story. Mm -hmm. So, Philip, one of the questions that uh, many fellows had uh, was, when you saw for the first time the results of GOG, 213. What was your personal thoughts and your personal reaction? Okay, so, but we need to keep in mind that GOG 213 was planned to show superiority of the surgical arm and not more. Mm -hmm. And justice has failed. There's no statistic, there's no significant deterioration by surgery. Just superiority was not shown. But when GOG213 was shown for the first time, including OS and PFS data, uh, one year before, we presented at ASCO already our PFS data from the desktop 3. Mm. So we knew already that our trial is at least positive for PFS. Mm. 
So we still were not sure if we could see an overall survival benefit, but we were already sure, okay, we have at least PFS and we hope that we will not see a detrimental effect in OS. Mm -hmm. You also need to keep in mind all the fantastic drugs that we discuss, we have now in ovarian cancer, so bevacizumab, olaparib, niraparib, rucaparib. All these trials have never shown an OS benefit in relapsed ovarian cancer. It's only PFS. <laughs> and why should we use another, other arguments for a surgical trial or chemotherapy trial? For all the new drugs, we only have PFS benefit. There's not even one with, with an OS difference regarding the new drugs. Excellent. Um, so now, as uh, we close, I always ask about your personal practice. So a patient comes to you today with platinum-sensitive recurrent serous ovarian cancer, excellent performance status. What does your counseling conversation look like with this patient? Uh, okay, my first question is always, is this patient HEO score positive and very important for me is the motivation of the patient. Mm. What were experience in the past with surgery? Were there any major complications? And, but I also tell the patients not only the chance, also the risks. Mm. And I also tell them, okay, there is a sure way, you just go to chemotherapy then you miss the chance of an OS benefit by complete resection. But I also tell them the worst case, that we try to open the abdomen, we are not successful, we have residual disease, there is a severe complication, and there is a delay of systemic therapy. And then we will have um, a deterioration by our surgical attempt in prognosis. Because we always have to keep in mind, systemic therapy is a standard for patients with relapsed ovarian cancer, and surgery is just an, op an option. You have seen this in the desktop one trial. There was in multivariate analysis because at this time point it was not clear if you have a good surgery, if you really need a systemic treatment or not. And we have seen that platinum-based chemotherapy is the most important prognostic factor, even in patients with complete resection. Excellent. And then I'll fill one last question. What is next? What is next in the question of surgery versus systemic therapy for recurrent ovarian cancer? Or do we have all the answers already? <laughs> um, I think it's a, it's, it's a good question. And for, for, that, for the desktop series, I needed now 18 or 19 years. I think this is a long time and now it's fine. <laughs> 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 um, <laughs> time to go rest. <laughs> yeah, time to time to rest now. And <laughs> I think all the all the investigators who participated in desktop three, but also GOG two thirteen and the SOC one trial, it's so extremely difficult to randomize patients to a surgery or not. Hmm. But we have still an open question, and one question is, I think, very important for us. When we started desktop three. The standard of care in all patients was primary surgery. <laughs> and the Valdibalkin surgery was very rarely used. So there are some patients included in the desktop three trial with 
complete transaction at interval debulking surgery. But this was at a time point, this was really a minority. So nowadays, depending a little bit on the countries, we have a much higher number of patients with interval debulking surgery. <laughs> and therefore, for me, the question is really important. What is the best management for patients with an interval debulking surgery and complete resection? Do we have the same outcome if you have now a positive HEO score and a complete resection or not? I think this is, for me, still open. And this was not important some years ago, this question, but nowadays it is important, and unfortunately we cannot answer it. Philip, thank you so, so much for your time, uh, your um, uh, obviously your, your contributions to the field of gynecologic oncology. Um, really congratulations to you and the entire team and all the centers that participated in the Desktop 3 trial. Uh, it is a huge accomplishment, and uh, you should be extremely proud, as I know you are. Uh, and again, uh, thank you so, so much once again for uh, spending time with us and, and sharing your thoughts on this podcast. Yeah, thank you, Pedro.